Long-term listeners will remember me saying at the beginning of the refugee crisis, the refugee outrage, that uh, the only lefties left in Australia were uh, progressive nuns and priests. Case in point, the guest I'm about to talk to, a name synonymous uh, with social welfare and particularly when it comes to asylum seekers and refugees, Sister Bridget Arthur. Sister Bridget is co-founder of the Bridgetine Asylum Seeker Project, which was set up in 2001 and has helped uh, thousands of refugees since. She's uh, been in court protecting the interests of Indigenous children and teenage climate activists, which is why she's on my shortlist of favourite Catholics. Sister Bridget recently got a gong, an Order of Australia, and has no plans to retire at 89, which makes me feel like a bit of a piker, heading for the exit at a mere 84. She is a rebel with a cause. Bridget, welcome to the Little Wireless Program. Thanks so much, Philip. Thank you. Had you not become a nun, what might you have done with your life? I think I probably would have still been a teacher. I was a teacher as a nun for most of my uh, life, although as a, as a younger person I was really interested in science and uh, thought I might be a doctor, but I don't think I ever would have done that, actually. But you couldn't be a doctor because you were at the wrong school, apparently. Uh, I was at a small country uh, school as a boarder and I would have had to move somewhere else to do subjects that I needed and both my parents and myself decided that that wasn't a very good idea, so I stayed there. I'm pretty ignorant of uh, the Catholic Church, as you well know. So tell me about the Brigidines. Uh, the Brigidines are an Irish order founded in the penal times in Ireland, basically to educate people who uh, couldn't go to school at that stage and to, yeah, to try and get women uh, involved in some things like choirs and other things. But we went on to become virtually a teaching order both in Ireland and then um, in Australia, New Zealand, a little, a few eventually in America, a few in Papua New Guinea. But we are a small congregation and getting smaller. Are religious organ orders, uh, well, withering? Oh, yes. It's the end of an era for orders, congregations like mine, and they're most of the active orders around Australia. Yeah, it's, it is the end of an era. We're, but we not can't. in the developing world, I suspect, which no, also seems to yeah. have no trouble recruiting priests. Yeah, because I think their needs there are the ones that were in developed countries uh, like England and so on. They were the needs in Australia back a century ago, but there's still needs in those developing <clears> countries. Well, orders like your own are also in a world where the role of women have changed so much. Mm, yes, and that's definitely a part, I think, of uh, it's got to do, I think, a bit with long-term, lifelong, long commitment. Uh, people find it a bit harder to commit themselves for the rest of their lives these days. But also, there are many ways in which you can do the sorts of things that are needed and not become a nun. So people can devote themselves well, to... Is, is there still a role for religious in society or can, well, lay people do the job? I think there is still a role for a, a number at any rate, maybe a small number of people who, because they live 
together and um, can live with not much money and so on and can bolster each other up. They can afford to take up causes, if you like, um, but to to try and do so- things to change society in ways where the government is not interested in changing um, anything. So I think there will always be a role. You are a classic lefty. You know that, Bridget. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't give myself any titles much, but <laughs> I guess I am. <laughs> okay. It used to be described as a calling. Do you still see that uh, word as relevant? It's probably not a word we or I would use these days, but uh, I did have a sense that uh, I was meant to do something and I'd, I'd better find out what that something was and eventually that was to become a Brigidine. You know, there were times when I wasn't sure whether that was going to be for the rest of my life, but it has turned out to be so. So you used to believe it was God's will that uh, you were chosen? I don't know that I ever had that sort of sense of a direct line to God, just as uh, maybe some people did. But in some odd, maybe, kind of way, odd to other people at any rate, yes, I did feel that it was what I was meant to do. That's a bit ambiguous, but I think that's how I would have seen it. I have to tell the listener that we were having some trouble connecting to Bridget, technical difficulties. I asked her to pray and would you believe suddenly they were fixed. <laughs> so I'm pretty I'm pretty impressed. I think you do have that uh, direct line to God. I think I'll use that story. <laughs> have there been times, well, dark nights of the soul for you? Oh, yes, yes, I, I think um, not not a huge number. I'm basically a very hopeful and optimistic sort of person, I think. I usually think things are going to work out. We can help them to work out, but they will work out. But so there have th- been there moments, were, there yeah. were not times when you thought of reneging on the, the calling? Oh, yeah, there were times when I certainly did, yeah. I thought it might be more exciting, more interesting, uh, all sorts of things uh, if I'd took a different path and I thought about it, but uh, each time that that happened, I always decided, oh, well, not right now. What about the Catholic Church? Is it in a sort of dotage? I suspect not, but it's certainly going through hard times, you might say. I mean, I think, uh, again, is there a need for religious congregations into the future? I think so. It'll be in much smaller numbers. Is there a need for church into the future? Yes, I believe so, but that church has to be much more responsive uh, than it has been to listening to ordinary people and what people want and not deciding that, you know, they know best. What about listening to women? Yeah, well, that'd be a good beginning, half of the population, but uh, I, I, I mean, many people want to listen and some people do. Um, and it's a, it's a very slow process. Do you ever imagine yourself as a, a woman priest? I never, ever wanted to be a woman priest, certainly unless the whole being a priest changed. But uh, having said that, I believe totally that there should be a place for women to be priests. I'm astonished how widely you've worked. You taught in the Bronx in New York City and from there to the western suburbs of Melbourne. What are the standout memories from those times? 
I think having an opportunity for me, uh, I've been extraordinarily grateful. I am extraordinarily grateful for the opportunities that I've had. And, you know, I wouldn't have had those if I hadn't been a Brigidine, probably. I mean, I might have ended up marrying a farmer up in where I came from. But the opportunities that I've had to do some exciting, interesting things uh, help, I think, in some cases, in ways that Perhaps, yeah, I was just lucky to be able to be there to give the help that I could and at the same time have a great sense of adventure and, yeah, I've been really lucky. So I've got lots of standout memories. As I sort of riffle through the pages about you, I suddenly learn that you were involved in what was known in the US as busing. In England, you used to uh, mix it up, well... You used to bus poorer kids to affluent areas. Mm, yeah, no, I wasn't involved in that, but it's certainly one of the things that I I think governments could be a lot, lot more innovative than they are in terms of having a more equal society. We've got a very classless society in Australia and to a large extent that's determined by where people go to school. You and I were both appalled by our treatment of asylum seekers and refugees. What was your sort of eureka moment? Uh, Yeah, well, I've had a few and then they've been sort of dashed to the ground. A eureka moment was one of them was certainly when people started to get out from immigration detention at all. The early days of our project, uh, we managed to get I don't know, about 10 people, I think, out one by one in a scheme where we, if we paid a certain amount of money, then the people could actually be released. They were people who'd come by plane at a time when most people were arriving by boat. And, you know, the joy of getting that first young man out of detention uh, by paying, at that stage, it was only $3,000. It went up in subsequent deals that we were able to make. But the joy of getting that young man out, because he was literally falling, sort of falling into a heap in front of our eyes. That was just wonderful. This is Ellen L and I'm talking to Sister Bridget Arthur. When did your work with asylum seekers start? It probably started back, I belonged to a justice group in the 80s and 90s, and we used to look at various social, social issues and wonder what we could do as a smallish group. And eventually we hit upon asylum seekers. We didn't actually know that they existed, I don't think, before then, sometime in the early 90s. And we got in touch with people who were in the Enterprise Hostel in Melbourne, uh, Cambodians, and we offered our services to go and teach them English because we thought that that was an absolute need. Anyway, we uh, came up, up against bureaucracy and it never were able to actually get into the place. But we did talk to those Cambodians uh, through the fence out in Springvale. It's a suburb of Melbourne. And, um, you know, from then on, as a group, we devoted some attention to what can we do to help. Yeah, and then that led into actually establishing. We then learned that a lot of people were actually in detention. In fact, those Cambodians got taken up to Port Hedland, I think, we followed their path because it wasn't very public. And then we decided that we'd try and get in touch with anybody in detention here in Melbourne and it just led on from there. I'd like you to tell the listener about how you were injured, in fact, broke your hip because of all things an attempted carjacking. <laughs> yes, that was 2001 and I was just uh, in the process then of starting to visit the detention centres. I was uh, waiting for a friend outside 
they said, meet me, you know, at nine o'clock, this couple. Uh, and I uh, duly went to a place in North Melbourne to meet them. And then I went inside to their daughter's place next door and uh, they were putting the kids to bed. The last thing they needed was for someone like me to be just hanging around. So I said, I'll go back and wait in the car until my friends, who were their parents, arrived. So I went back to the car and then a, it was dark and I was listening to the cricket. Then uh, somebody approached the car and I didn't take too much notice and he pointed to his wrist to say what was the time and I wound down the window to tell him what the time was and he put his hand in and yanked open the door and then grabbed onto me uh, and threw me out. But it was in the car was into the curb. So as he was starting, I actually landed behind the car and I thought, oh, my God, he's going to run over me because he couldn't go forward. He had to come backwards. And that car had never not started, but it didn't start that night. You will see some some God something uh, <laughs> something in this story. Um, <laughs> so it didn't start. And then I was screaming, of course, and the people I'd been in to see, plus the neighbours, uh, all came out and they, uh, the man jumped out of the car grabbed my bag and then ran off. And so anyway, we just waited until the ambulance came then. And you were on crutches for months. I was. And, and then that's the, the link with the asylum seeker story because the first time then I actually got into the detention centre to see someone and he came out one door, he's a man in his 40s, I think, uh, on crutches because he'd fallen over in the detention centre and broken his leg or hip or something, and I came out. We had exactly the same crutches on. And so we just looked at each other and then just burst out laughing. So it was a good icebreaker, if nothing else. Do you Sorry. know where he is now, uh, Bridget? Yes, I do. I do. He's a ma he's married and uh, he had a previous family and I think he's been able to bring them out. But he's um, married again and uh, they, yeah, they live in a suburb quite close to me. He has contacts me every now and again and I must admit he does say, come and we'll meet up. And I've, I have met up a few times with him since he got out of detention, but not many times. But of course, not all are success stories, are they? No, we have, uh, unfortunately, some will never be success stories because the people involved have been so traumatised and so so broken, I think, uh, by the whole system that, uh, yeah, they just are sad, sad people who um, can't get can't get on with their lives. And then we have the middle group of people who probably have been traumatised but manage eventually to get, to get a new life for themselves, but uh, it's hard. Bridget, it must be hard mm. when you uh, hear some of the uh, horrific stories of asylum seekers. I'm thinking of the Afghani refugees who, or a particular refugee whose wife and daughter died before he was able to get them to Australia. Yeah. Yes, it's a, a man I know well and uh, he's just a beautiful man, but... He used to say before he could get the rest of his children, his wife died of cancer. Uh, his daughter was kidnapped and burnt to death and he actually was, he went to pay the ransom and he was told to go to the car where her, she was and her body was there burnt um, along with some other young women. Uh, <clears throat> and then he tried to get the rest of his um, four children out and they were, they were desperate. They were in a desperate plight. He worked... Like long, long, long hours making flatbread in a um, Afghan uh, shop, a restaurant. 
he would bend over. I saw him many times. He would bend over a sort of a cylinder-type machine that he was making this flat bread. And he was just, it was 60 degrees. Uh, At any rate, he worked and worked. And eventually he got a a visa to stay. And uh, just last year, he got a visa for these four uh, young people. And then they hadn't been out for too long and his younger son was diagnosed with bowel cancer. Luckily, he seems, that child, who's now 17, seems to be okay. But they're doing okay. But he used to just say, I don't care what happens to me. If I just have my children, if they get here, I don't care. I'll die. I can die after that. It doesn't matter. Now, you've helped thousands, but right now, 500 or so, I understand. Yes, we're not very good at keeping numbers uh, and because we do things in lots of different areas, it's hard to know. I mean, we give direct help, help with accommodation of about 270 people um, that most most of those we pay the utility bills for and so on. But then there's another group we just help with some basic money to live on and food. We get give a fair bit of food out. We help, we've got volunteers who help with uh, legal matters um, we've got others who help by befriending families. That's, we've got about 100 active volunteers who go out and just just become friends. They will let us know. Even this morning we were dealing with a case where there's probably viol- family violence of some kind and the volunteer rang just to say, hey, I need to debrief and I need some advice as what to do next, you know. So they're people who've just made friends with families and that's been a really, really important part of what we do, I think. As you know, there are some who uh, who say we should be curtailing immigration because of integration difficulties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there certainly are. I mean, I, I dream of a world that well, certainly won't happen in my lifetime, but um, of where borders are not so sacrosanct. You know, who said that we own every bit of Australia just because we happen to have been born here? Um but anyway, that's that's a long way off. But I think the sort of total power that we have over some people who just arrive saying life was intolerable um, where I was and I've come, I've come for a safer place, that we can keep them for years and years and years and years not knowing whether we're going to say yes or no, that even after all of that time we can eventually say no, that during that time we give them very little support uh, if any, uh, in terms of income and so on. I mean, I just, it's outrageous, really. Bridget, you've been a uh, litigation guardian for uh, children in immigration uh, detention, in prison, and more recently, teenager climate activist. How did that come about? Well, a litigation guardian is someone who's needed when a person themselves can't can't represent themselves. And so lawyers are often enough looking for someone who can be the person who takes the matter to court, sort of, for people who can't do it themselves. And I think, I mean, having done it once way back, uh, then <laughs> lawyers get to know that uh, you have said yes. And so they often enough ask ask you if you'll do another case. Um, and I've been happy enough to, well, very happy to do it where it's been I, possible. I discovered that you and I have 
well, something else in common, and that is that we both love the same Beatles song. <laughs> Eleanor Rigby has always <laughs> been my favourite. <laughs> it's a good one, isn't it? Yes, I just was reminded of that yesterday when I was talking to someone, and one of my students, my ex-students, who would be now 70-something, so it's something when you have students who are in their 70s, uh, but he said to me, "Why didn't you tell? Why didn't you tell me, or why didn't you tell us that Ella, Eleanor Rigby was your favourite? You never told us." I thought, "Heavens above! I didn't have to tell you everything about myself, including something about music that I liked." It was it was a very funny moment. <laughs> you also like uh, Archie Roach's songs, I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's so poignant some of that. That music, yeah. Now, you and I are fellow octogenarians, although you're further advanced in that direction. <laughs> you're a nonagenarian, sure. I nearly now. am. Yeah. I nearly am, yeah. But unlike me, no plans to retire. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, I'm slowed down, so that's sort of a bit, bit retiring, I suppose. I'm much slower now at doing things than I used to be. But uh, I think I'll keep doing what I can do while I can. Any regrets? Oh, yes, probably that I haven't been brave enough certain times to speak out or to do what could be done. Maybe not brave enough, maybe not not uh, energetic enough. Yeah. I absolve you from all guilt. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what, what do you think your legacy will be, uh, Bridget? I don't think much about legacies. I hope that... I, I strongly believe that there are such good people around, but good young people too, who will be there long after I'm gone. And they are so idealistic and they'll they'll continue to do the, the things that are needed. Whether as religious or lay. Absolutely. Bridget, it's been a delight to talk to you. Thanks, Phil. And my guest has been uh, Sister Bridget Arthur, and she's the coordinator of the Bridgetine Asylum Seeker Project, among other things. Thanks, Bridget. Thanks, Philip. Thank you. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.